Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for September 20th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. Rampant Medicare and Medicaid audits are underway. Among them, clinical validation audits, especially with Medicare Advantage claims. You'll hear the latest when Dr. Erica Raymer joins us to report our lead story. Will President Biden back down on his order that companies with more than 100 employees mandate vaccinations or weekly testing for workers? Matthew Albright has our legislative update. Ellen St. Samnick has the latest news on the social determinants of health, plus the Monitor Monday listener survey. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney David Glazer. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, Idaho has activated a statewide system for rationing care, treating only those who appear to be survivors. All others are receiving comfort care. Idaho says the situation there is dire, especially since the state has one of the nation's lowest vaccination rates. Other states are enacting similar crisis standards as the battle continues against COVID-19. Meanwhile, the Democratic plan to lower prescription drug prices was defeated on the House committee last week. The plan would allow direct negotiation of drug prices to help pay for the $3.5 trillion spending bill, but there might be a chance later. Finally, children and teenagers saw their body mass index increase at almost double the rate during the pandemic. This, according to the CDC, are kids gaining weight faster during the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, we'll have to see. We have much news reporting. We begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. It's another busy week last week. Modern Healthcare reported that Aetna is in trouble with Medicaid because they intentionally falsified their provider directory by listing physicians who were not contracted. Now, that's bad enough, but apparently some of these non-contracted physicians were actually dead. Now, why would they do that? Well, to get a Medicaid contract, they have to have enough contracted providers to meet the patient demand. So if they couldn't get enough doctors, they faked it. And I guess in the eyes of Aetna, a dead doctor cannot order expensive medical care for their patients, so it was great for their profits. There was also an announcement that the Department of Justice is intervening in a false claim suit, accusing another Medicare Advantage plan of fraudulently submitting diagnoses that were not clinically substantiated and which resulted in higher capitation payments than were justified. What is interesting in this case is the DOJ is going also after the company that the MA plan hired to find those additional diagnoses. From news reports, this company asked physicians to add documentation to the patient's medical record as much as a year after the visit to try and capture these more complex diagnoses. As we heard from Mary Inman last week, when she discussed the Sutter Health $90 million settlement for similar actions, this is a hot area for enforcement. I wonder if this is an indication that the government may be souring on their relationship with these MA plans. While CMS enjoys being able to write a single check and let someone else take care of all the hassles of processing claims and auditing payments, they may finally be realizing that they are not getting everything they pay for. It'll be interesting to watch. And as the expression goes, every time a settlement is signed, another whistleblower gets a million dollar check. Next, 
As some of you may know, there's been a recent trend of private equity investment firms buying up medical practices. I see private equity as really rich people who invest in whatever they can to make even more money. And they accomplish that by cutting costs and bringing in more revenue using whatever means they can. Well, last week, the Center for Medicare Advocacy reported that a private equity firm bought a company that owns 61 nursing homes with over 7,000 beds. The center is concerned because private equity takeovers often result in higher prices and poorer quality of care. Let's hope they're wrong. We should not look at our vulnerable seniors simply as profit centers. And finally, last week, Rack Monitor posted a great article by Tiffany Ferguson about condition code 44 and the right number of them to have, besides being as few as possible. But like many other key performance indicators, trying to lower the number of CC44s can be problematic. It's the rare hospital that can staff their UR team 24-7, so some patients are going to slip through. And if you put pressure on the staff to lower condition code 44s, they may simply leave the admissions to be self-denied after discharge. And that creates even more work and less revenue. So beware of your KPIs. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Everyone knows about audits of healthcare providers, but what about the billing companies or a data analytics company? In a complaint filed last week, a New York data mining company, DXID, is accused of allegedly helping a Medicare Advantage program game federal billing regulations in a way that enabled the plan to overcharge for patient treatment. As you know, Medicare Advantage plans are paid more for sicker patients. The supposedly DXID combed past medical records for quote-unquote misdiagnoses, for example, adding major depression to an otherwise happy consumer. A few years ago, I won an injunction for a provider who 100% relied on the billing company to bill. Because this company aggressively upcoded we use the victim's rights statute in the Social Security Act to defend the provider, and it worked. A lot of times, physicians and providers forget about the victim's rights statutes. Now, this complaint against DXID cites medical conditions were exaggerated or weren't supported. Uh, the Justice Department is seeking trouble damages in the False Claims Act. It's going to be a big case, and the company has been closed down. Now, Medicare Advantage has been the target of multiple government investigations. Their uh, one 2020 report estimated improper payments to MA plans topped $16 billion. So Medicare Advantage is going to be a hotly audited program going forward. I also want to talk about targeted probe and educate audits, the TPE audits. Starting September 1st, they have been res resumed. So they were suspended due to COVID, but now TP audits are back. Unlike recovery audits, the stated goal of TPE audits is to help providers reduce claim denials and appeals with one-on-one -on -one education. Now, I say this with a grain of salt because TPE audits are not anything to sneeze at. You need to beware of these kinds of audits because they're not as friendly as they purport. 
A TTE audit can result in a 100% prepayment review, uh, an extrapolated overpayment, a referral to a RAC auditor, or other action. So carefully respond to all TTE audits. When a TTE audit begins, you'll get a notice of review. The MAC will review about 20 to 40 claims, and you do get three chances. Don't use those three chances. Get it right the first time. If your claims are all found to be compliant, the TP audit ends, and the provider cannot be selected for review again for a year unless the MAC detects significant changes in provider billing. However, if the claims are found not to be compliant, the MAC will invite the provider to a one-on-one -on -one education session specific to the provider's documentation and coding practices. The provider is then given 45 days to make changes, and a second round of 20 to 40 records will be requested. Again, try to get it right the first time. You get three rounds. If you fail after three rounds, you are referred to CMS with other penalties. So going forward, 2021, Medicare Advantage audits, PPE audit. Watch out. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole, very much. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Ellen McSandrick, David Glazer, Dr. Erica Reamer, who's standing by to report our lead story, and Matthew Albright. It's Monday, it's September the 20th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Questions persist about the proper use of Condition Code 44, making it an enigma for utilization management. But not much is said about another enigma, Condition Code W2. When these codes are used at your facility, they could reflect some deficiencies in your utilization review process and could result in loss of appropriate reimbursement for services provided. You need to know the difference between 44 and Condition Code W2. You can by attending an upcoming webcast with Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum will help you and your team understand the difference between Condition Code 44 and Condition Code W2, and you'll learn how to reduce the risk of audits and the loss of appropriate reimbursement. Register today to attend Condition Code 44 versus Condition Code W2. Understand when and how to use both. The webcast is this Thursday, September 23rd. Register at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Money Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. It's the risk that you're going to fail to push back against the UPIC short stay audit. So if you're not in a hospital, you can daydream during my segment. I guess working in a hospital, not hospitalized. But if you are working for a hospital, you're going to want to hear this. One of my clients recently received the results of an audit of one-day stays. The UPIC denied the overwhelming majority of the one-day stays it reviewed, and here is a typical reason they gave. This is a quote. The provider's documentation didn't support that an inpatient level of care is required to observe the beneficiary's symptoms. The provider's documentation did not include any other abnormalities that would require an inpatient level of care, as opposed to monitoring an observation at outpatient level. The documentation submitted doesn't support the severity of illness or intensity of service for an inpatient admission. Therefore, the claim is denied. Those buzzwords of severity of illness or intensity of service are likely familiar to most of you. 
They're commonly used in the industry. There is, however, one key place where those phrases do not appear, and that's in the two midnight rule. So what does the two midnight rule say? Well, 42 CFR 412.3 says, this is paraphrased a bit, except as specified below, an inpatient admission is generally appropriate for payments under Medicare Part A when the admitting physician expects the patient to require hospital care that crosses two midnights. Now, neither the phrase severity of illness nor intensity of service appear. When it comes to determining whether the patient should be an inpatient, there's only one question. When the physician admitted the patient, did the physician reasonably expect that they would need two days of hospitalization? If the physician expects they'll be in the hospital for two days, they're inpatients, period. Many people will ask, but wait, do they need hospital care? That's a fair question, but let's be clear about this, and this is really important. Observation is hospital care. If it's anticipated they'll need two days of observation, they need two days of hospital care. Now, if they could have been at home or in a hotel, then it's likely they didn't need hospital care. But if they were hooked up to an IV and getting nursing and observation, they were using hospital care. And so this notion that they only needed an observation level of care, well, that's just completely inconsistent with the Medicare rules. And the question isn't whether they actually stayed for two days, it's all about expectations. As the regulation says, if an unforeseen circumstance results in a shorter beneficiary stay, the patient can still appropriately be treated on an inpatient basis. It's completely unfair to take all of the one-day stays and conclude that they just, on their face, are inappropriate. And if the patient received two days of observation care, that's darn compelling evidence that they would meet the two, that the expectation for a two-hospital night stay was reasonable. You know, that said, what actually happens isn't dispositive. A reviewer has to stand in the shoes of the physician at the time they made the admission decision. Was it reasonable to expect a two-day stay? If so, the Medicare admission was proper and the audit should be fought. Chuck, during a Medicare short stay audit, use your eagle's eye. But while there is talk on the streets and it sounds so familiar, there isn't a new kid in town. It is, and always has been, about great expectations. Everybody's watching you. And it's not that the intensity of service or the severity of service or the level of care or anything else in the MBG or Interqual determine the state things. It's just whether they're going to need hospital care for two nights. Just Chuck, back to you. <laughs> Thanks, David, very, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredericton and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Sandwich. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monitor Monday, all. Over the past 20 months, I've discussed countless nooks and crannies of COVID's intersection with the social determinants. One path not addressed is the societal shift in insurance from private and commercial plans to public options. 
The U.S. Census Bureau read my mind and provided current demographics on this topic, information of interest to every healthcare organization. The Bureau's latest report, Health Insurance Coverage in the United States 2020, looks at the breakdown across all coverage sectors, private coverage from employment-based direct purchase, those purchased directly from an insurance company or federal or state marketplace, as well as TRICARE, or public coverage, Medicare, Medicaid, and the Children's Health Insurance Plan, CHAMPA CA or, or VA, those without these coverage options are considered uninsured, along with persons only having coverage through the Indian Health Service, since this coverage is not considered comprehensive. The report lowdown provides interesting considerations. 8.6% of people, some 28 million persons, did not have health insurance at any point during the year. 91.4% had some type of health insurance for all or part of 2020. 66.5% of the population had private insurance versus 34.8% with public. Employment-based insurance was the most common type of insurance, 54.4%. Though the public coverage options, Medicare at 18.4%, then Medicaid at 17.8%, and direct purchase coverage at 10.5% of the population. TRICARE came in at 2.8% and Department Veterans Affairs or Civilian Health and Medical Programs at slightly under 1% of the population. The overall rate of public health insurance rose to 34.8%, and the number of uninsured children under 19 rose to 9.3%. This is a disparity with data released by CMS state records, which showed a 15.6% increase in the number of Medicaid and SHIP enrollees from February 2020 to March 2021, over 10 million people. Report reviewers were quick to note how the data reflected the pandemic's impact. More people relying on public insurance options, dramatic increases in families relying on SHIP, and a rise to almost 10% of children living below the poverty level, a story I reported on last week. The formal report is available through the U.S. Census Bureau website with associated links in my story upcoming this week for RAC Monitor. Data across Medicaid expansion and non-expansion states is also provided, which is a topic of ongoing scrutiny. At the end of the day, close to 12% of the population lacked health insurance the composition being Hispanic at 24.9%, Blacks at 14.3%, Whites, and then Asians at 7.7%. Hospitals provided $41.6 billion in uncompensated care in 2019, with the number expected to skyrocket for 2020. We've got miles to go before we sleep in addressing this challenge. This week's Monitor Monday survey is curious about the impact of these trends on our listeners' organizations. The most shift has been noticed in the percentage of patients that your organization with. Private insurance plans, public insurance plans, uninsured, all of the above, do not know. Well, we'll hear the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was consultant and author, Alan Fink-Sanrick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday Legislative Update. 
The Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Here now is Matthew Albright. Thanks, Chuck. On Friday, a key FDA advisory committee voted against approving boosters for the general public for Pfizer's COVID vaccine. The committee, made up of scientists and statisticians, let's try that again, statisticians, found that there was not enough data on the safety or effectiveness of a booster shot for the general public. The public, the committee did approve the use of boosters for people 65 years and older and for those at high risk. Now, the FDA technically does not have to go along with this advisory committee's recommendations, but they usually do. And Democrats continue to hammer away at their $3.5 trillion budget plan, which includes what Biden calls his American family plan. The strategy is for Democrats to pass the plan as a budget reconciliation package, thus not needing any Republican help. Now, on the health care side, as we've noticed, noted, the proposed budget includes more funds for home health, an expansion of Medicaid to include the 12 states that have not done so under the ACA, increased subsidies for marketplace plans, and an expansion of Medicare to include dental, hearing, and vision coverage. Now, CMS, for its part, says that could take three to five years to operationalize those expansions in benefit. Most analysts agree that the $3.5 trillion package, if passed as proposed, would be the most significant safety net legislation passed since the New Deal. But in order for it to be passed, all of the Democrats in both chambers, or nearly all, would have to be aligned with nearly no dissenters. Technically, this budget, this $3.5 trillion package, should be nailed down by the House by September 27th, but analysts do assume that the discussion will go on through November. And as Chuck noted at the top of the broadcast, American companies are waiting anxiously for a regulation that would implement the president's vaccine mandate. That mandate would require private companies with 100 or more employees to be vaccinated or to be tested. Now, OSHA is the agency that is responsible for drafting this regulation, as it is responsible for regulating workplace safety. And if you're having a deja vu about waiting for an important OSHA rule that seems to take forever, you're not mistaken. Industry waited over six months for an OSHA rule to come out that would implement Biden's order last January on how employers should manage COVID in the workplace. That rule was finally released at the end of June. And if I could opine for a moment, the result was at best disappointing in terms of clarity for employers. And it was already out of date because of the status of the pandemic at that time. To implement Biden's requirement that employees vaccinate or test, OSHA needs to up its game by developing a clear and legally sound regulation that employers could effectively follow, defend, and of course, they should publish the rule maybe sometime before this pandemic ends. Pardon the sarcasm. So Chuck, OSHA, the rule is expected in the next few weeks, but again, deja vu. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew is the Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous. And coming up next are the important results of today's Modern Monday Listener Survey and later the unwelcome clinical validation denials. It's our lead story, but first, this important message. The American College of Physician Advisors National Physician Advisor Conference is back. 
The conference, titled Multifaceted Advising in an Unconventional World, takes place virtually October 18th through 20th. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly one of a kind and has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click the invitation on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to register and earn up to 26 CME credits this October. Now's the time for the results of today's Modern Money Listener Survey. Once again, here is Alan Fink-Samnick. Well, thank you, Chuck. And most interesting responses to our question about looking at shifts in insurance in the percentage of patients at your healthcare organizations. Our responses for this week were about 5.8% shift in private insurance plans. Public insurance plans really saw tremendous growth of close to 15% of you, and that is very much in line with the data we saw from the Census Bureau. Um, Also increases in uninsured populations at 12%. Of course, 14% of you were on to me and said, everything has shifted with all of the above. About 50% of you do not know, and as I'm prone to say, I know that there is so much on everybody's radar, but so much that we must keep in touch with to keep our organizations financially focused on the best needs of social determinants of health and vulnerable populations. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. Coming up next, our lead story. Today's lead story is sponsored by Axia Solutions. Axia partners with health systems, hospitals, clinics, and physician practices to streamline processes and amplify performance in the heart of the revenue cycle by improving knowledge, managing coding quality and claims, reviewing denials, and handling appeals, all to fuel continuous improvement. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, there are reports of rapid auditing activity underway, and that means plenty of denials, and one of the more troubling denials are clinical validation denials. Joining us now to report our lead story is Dr. Erica Reamer. Good morning, Dr. Reamer. Good morning, Chuck. I was very honored when you and Ron asked me to join you today on Monitor Mondays to discuss clinical validation. I suggest our listeners read my full article, which will be posted on Thursday on Mac Monitor. Historically, coding denials were based on DRG validation was the encounter coded and sequenced correctly. There has been a shift in documentation and coding denials to clinical validation. Clinical validation denials challenge whether a documented diagnosis really was present during an encounter. The issue is that the condition seems contrary to the clinical indicators to the reviewer. There are multiple ways that clinical validation concerns arise. The first is actual incorrect diagnoses either by error or lack of integrating new information and evolving the diagnosis, like a patient with a, quote, possible gram-negative pneumonia, close quote, having positive cultures for pneumococcus. Clinical validation issues can also arise from inherent trouble making definitive diagnoses, like not having distinct criteria or not keeping up with the current literature. Every patient with a low oxygen level does not have acute hypoxic respiratory failure. 
sometimes hints of financial incentives cause clinicians to use diagnoses which are not clinically valid, like documenting acute post-procedural respiratory failure to justify critical care billing, or diagnosing all TAVR patients with acute systolic heart failure to get into a higher-tiered DRG. But I would postulate that the most common reason for clinical validation issues derives from documentation. Providers do not document everything they think, and they tend to copy and paste things they are no longer thinking. Over-reliance on templating can lead to inconsistencies, like is the patient really well-developed, well-nourished, or do they suffer from severe protein calorie malnutrition? Did the patient have sepsis on admission as documented, or did they not, as the discharge summary omits? There are wide-reaching implications to clinical validation problems, such as triggering the False Claims Act, provoking the Office of Inspector General, or most commonly, inducing payers to remove the diagnosis from the coding, and most often downgrading the DRG and reimbursement. How can an organization avoid clinical validation denials? The culture must be one which promotes the accurate telling of the story of the encounter. Coders and clinical documentation uh, integrity professionals must be empowered to generate clinical validation queries. The actual validation is performed by the clinician. Providers should not take it as an affront to their clinical judgment. The answer is either the condition doesn't exist and should be removed from the record, or it does exist and the documentation needs to be beefed up. The documentation should be telling a longitudinal story which is dynamic. Copy and paste should be reframed as copy and edit. Dr. Ronald Hirsch likes to say, if you didn't ask it, review it, examine it, or think it, it shouldn't be in that day's note. Inpatient, best practice is to have a diagnosis appear at least three times when diagnosed, as treated and resolved, and then in the discharge summary. Please see my article for any other suggestions on how to approach this problem. The key is to have providers put mentation back into their documentation and be sure anyone would draw the same conclusion from the same presented clinical scenario. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very much. That was Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated, and she's a very popular co-host on Talk 10 Tuesdays. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And we thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink, Sandwich, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and Erica Reamer, who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcast on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.